gosh, look at that video. Anyway, guys, welcome to Downtown Harbor Church. If it's your first time here, my name is John. I'm the lead pastor. So if you were here last week, you noticed that we announced that we are for the first time in joining 2018, and we are officially live streaming on Facebook. There's the camera right here. It looks like this Pringle can, all right? And what we said last week was that, hey, listen, just because we're now online doesn't mean you can't come to church. This week, the 9 a.m. service was strangely empty. So I was like, pull up the, let me see who's online. Go, anybody watching? And sure enough, all my friends are at home watching online. So I text them. I go, if you don't come, you're dead to me. Thanks for coming. Appreciate it. I'm just kidding. If you're out of town, you really should watch online. It's a great thing. It's, it's, it's amazing technology, how this stuff works. So it's fantastic. So if it is your first time here, you are coming in what I consider to be a really great series. Um, it's this idea that, well, here's how it started. Many times in ministry, people will come up to me and they say, hey, um, I'm Christian. I've said yes to Jesus. What am I supposed to believe about this particular topic? What, what is the, the Christian stance, if you will, on this particular issue? And so what we're trying to do over the next couple of weeks is hit these major issues to set you up so that if somebody asks you a question, you know how to answer it. Because the truth is, is that at some point in your life, inevitably, Someone's going to ask you about your faith. They're going to say, what do you believe about Jesus? Last week we talked about the Bible. They may say, hey, do you believe the Bible's real? Do you believe the Bible is reliable? All this kind of thing. And the truth is, you need to be prepared to answer them. When they ask you the question, because you know it's coming, it's always at Thanksgiving when you don't want to talk about it, they're going to ask you a question, they're going to try to jab you maybe, or maybe they just want to know. But you need to be prepared. We get this idea from Peter, who's one of the disciples of Jesus, and, and he says this. He says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Say yes to Jesus. And he goes, but always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So in this instance, Peter's saying, look, listen, at some point, someone's going to ask you why you believe in Jesus. You need to have a response ready. You need to be prepared to answer that question. And so over the next couple of weeks, I want to help you to not only be able to answer that question, because it's not really easy to answer. You might think it is, but it's just not. I want to help you answer that question and also be able to talk about a number of other topics that Christians often get asked about. And perhaps they're topics that you may be struggling about today. So Peter says, all right, listen, when you're having this conversation, when you're talking with one another, when we're chatting, even on Tuesday night at this small group, and you should totally come, he says, do this with gentleness and respect. Often this is lost on Christians trying to share their faith. We don't act like Jesus, and we try to ram our beliefs down other people's throats. And that is not how Jesus operated. Jesus always shared the truth. But he left it up to the individuals to do with the truth what they want, and if they didn't want to accept it, he said, hey, that's your prerogative, and he walked away. So we want to do this with gentleness and respect. And when I talked about this last week, I said, in this message series, there are going to be topics that we are going to disagree on. And that's, an, that's an okay thing. Christians can disagree on topics. I actually think it's a good thing. I think it's good to have differences of opinions, even within one church, because it forces us to have conversations, to defend our beliefs, to sharpen our beliefs, and to eventually arrive at one truth. So here's the truth. I'm just going to give you a, a warning, like Adam said. Today, someone, and I hope it doesn't happen, it didn't happen at the first service, someone might get offended. Let me tell you why. So 
before you put this up. There are particular topics in Christianity that um, are controversial. But this one that I want to talk to you about today is, there's just so much debate over it. And it really has divided churches many times. And it's put a, a division between church and, and society. It has split friends. And, and there's just so much controversy surrounding this topic. But, but the truth is, we just we need to talk about it. We, we, we can't not talk about it. It's so important in culture. It's so important in this, in this church particularly. We have to spend time talking about creation. What do you think I was going to say? Okay, anyway, so we have to spend time talking about creation. Because the truth is this. When it comes to creation, when it comes to creation, society falsely believes, and society is everybody, Society falsely believes that it's science versus Christianity, that these two institutions can't coexist, that they're always at odds. One of the things that we hear all the time, and maybe you've said this, maybe you Googled us and you thought this, but they say, wow, a church and a science museum, hmm? Gosh, is that awkward? How does that happen? It's great. They love us. We love them. It's a great space. It's fantastic. It's not a problem. So I was thinking about, well, why, why is this, there's weird stress between Christians and science? Where did this come from? Because historically speaking, all the great scientists of the world, were, were most of them were Christians. So what happened? Where did this divide happen? What happened in society that all of a sudden people think that Christians and science can't get along? There's no exact answer. But my opinion is this. I believe much of this happens because of the book and the play, Inherit the Wind. I don't know if you were forced to read this book in middle school or high school. It's brutal. It was a movie. It was a play. But it's based off of the Scopes trial that took place, and I think it was the 1920s. And it was this idea that they wanted to begin teaching evolution in the public schools. And this book and the movie and the play show that Christians absolutely lost their minds. And it made famous this idea that you're trying to teach that man came from monkey. People lost their minds. Now, we're not talking about evolution today. But the truth is, I believe because of this play, because of this book, because of that trial, that this divide happened in our society. Sometimes, however, Christians do take positions that fly in the face of science. It's the truth. I mean, just speaking in this church alone, we believe in miracles. We believe that Jesus actually conquered death and was resurrected. We can't prove that. There's no empirical evidence of that. So that does fly in the face of science. But the question that we are going to receive in life as Christians, and the question that maybe even you struggle with is, what do you believe about creation? Maybe you've said yes to Jesus and you're good with all that part, but you go, well, you know, the, the Genesis part, it's a little dicey for me. What am I supposed to believe about that? So when you talk to Christians, everybody seems to have a different theory. Everybody seems to have a different theory about what's happening in Genesis when it comes to the creation, what happens in the beginning, all that kind of stuff. Everyone's got a different opinion. One of my friends yesterday said, well, John, I was on Instagram today, and I, I, I saw this thing about, about creation. How does this line up scripturally? Can you kind of give me some insight? And she sent me this. I don't know if you can read it, but I'll, it says this. What if Mars has water on it 
because we used to live there, and we messed up the climate so badly that we had to send an escape pod to Earth with only Adam and Eve in it, and the pod was the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. How does that square with Scripture? Can you give me a little insight on that? And I love the bottom guy. He goes, hey, this guy might be onto something. I gave it a like. Here's the truth. Worked perfectly. I mean, what's the question? It seems fine. Here's the deal. That's funny, but they're also making fun of the creation story. And, and, because the reality is that we're confused about what's going on back there. We're, we're all kind of confused. See, when someone asks you, what do you believe about creation? I think the real question they're asking you is this. Do you believe the universe was created in six 24-hour days? And do you believe in Adam and Eve? This is really what the question... And I think, because I've spoken with you guys, even those of you said, yeah, this is a problem for many of us. We, we kind of say... I don't know. This 24-hour thing, I can't really get my mind around it. The Adam and Eve thing, I just don't know. So we have two goals. for, And this is a monumental task, so I'm going to do the best that I can to cram all of this information into today for you. We have two goals. The first goal is this, to take an honest, theologically correct look at creation and to help us remove the tension from this six-day, 24-hour creation account that we read in the Bible. Now, all this week, I basically wanted to kill myself because all I did was read about ancient Hebrew scripture. I read all kinds of, you know, Christian journals on interpretation, and I watched YouTube videos about debates about astrophysicists because I wanted to make sure that what I said from this stage was correct, and it wasn't just some guy's opinion that this is scholarly, and that I give you guys all the tools so that you can make your own decision based on the tools that I'm going to give you. Second goal is this. I just want to have a conversation about Adam and Eve. We don't have a ton of time to do this. I just want to hit on Adam and Eve because they're part of creation and just talk about their involvement in the history of the world and how what they did and how they lived impact our lives. Step one, let me ask you a question. See, if you were paying attention last week, do you know what the Bible is? You know the answer. Last week we talked about the idea that the Bible isn't a book. It's 66 books written by 40 different authors on three continents in three languages over the course of 1,500 years. That's a micro level of what the Bible is. At a macro level, okay, at a 36,000 feet view, do you know what the Bible is? The Bible is the revelation of God. This is how God reveals himself to man. That is what the Bible is, okay? And here's what we know about it. It was created so that we can know who God is, that he's in charge, and that, he, that we are, are in need of a Savior. That, that is it. That is the only reason the Bible was written, so that when you open its pages, you can learn that there is a God, that he's in charge of everything, and that we are in need of a Savior, namely Jesus Christ. Do you know what the Bible isn't? Because being able to answer this question is almost as important as answering the first one. Do you know what the Bible isn't? It isn't a science textbook. It never was, and it never will be. Galileo, one of the most famous uh, scientists there ever was, made this quote famous, and it actually was originally from a Catholic cardinal. And it says this, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. And if I ever saw a tweet, this is a tweet. He's saying, guys, look, when you open up the scriptures and it's beautiful language, you have to understand 
that this book was created so that we know Jesus and that through him we can go to heaven. But it does not talk about how the heavens go. It's not what it's there for. It's not to teach you about the universe, all these signs. It's just not what it's there for. But people, and not just Christians, try to force the Bible into being something that it's not. We try to make it say something it doesn't. We try to make it do things it was not meant to do. And we run into issues because of it. We confuse people. We challenge people. And that's when controversies start. Before I put this next thing up on the screen, just don't like, tweet about it immediately. All right, Give me a chance to just qualify before you kind of go nuts with me. The Bible has limitations. Let me say it again. The Bible has limitations. Let me qualify that now. The Bible is all true. The Bible is inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. And the Bible, I believe, is without error. But it does have limitations. And it's okay to admit that. Let me tell you why it's okay to admit that. Because John, who's one of the disciples of Jesus, tells us this at the end of his gospel. Look at what he says. He says this, Jesus also did many other things, if they were all written down, which they're not, but if they were, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. He's saying, look, here's what you have to understand. Jesus did so many miracles. Jesus taught so much, and we've just written down a fraction of everything that he ever did and everything that he ever said and everything that we've ever seen. But if we wrote it all down, the, the, the world could not contain it all. Not possible. So when I read that, here's what I understand. When I read John saying that, here's what I get. If Jesus is the most important topic in the world, and I believe he is, okay? If he's the most important topic in the world and God saw fit to limit the information about him, is it unreasonable then to say that the Bible may not fully address other less important issues? Like dinosaurs and like Neanderthals. And in the context of today's discussion, like a fully detailed scientific analysis of the creation of the universe and the matter found in it. See, the reality is that the Bible doesn't talk about dinosaurs. The Bible doesn't talk about Neanderthals. The Bible doesn't talk about plate tectonics and Pangaea. Do you know why? Because that information was unnecessary for the ancient Hebrews learning about their God for the first time. They were meeting this God for the first time, and they just didn't need that information. All the ancient Hebrews needed was to know that God created the universe, and that's it. And he said, I've blessed you with intellect and scientists. They can go figure the rest out. All you need to know is that I'm in charge, and I orchestrate it all. So, what would, what would lead someone to believe that the Bible was created in six days? Because many people believe that. Maybe you do. So what would lead us to believe that? Well, it's the English Bible. Uh, it's actually quite clear, so let's just get all on the same page and let's just read it together. One of the most famous lines in all of literature. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. 
Then God said, let there be light. Okay? And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning one day. Seems pretty clear. The rest of the chapter goes on to document it. I'm just going to give you bullet points just so you know if you don't already know. On day two, he made the sky and the sea. On day three, he made land and plants. On day four, he made the stars, sun, and moon, which you might be asking the question, wait, didn't you just read on day one that he made night and day? How did he do that if the stars and the sun and the moon aren't until day four? We'll talk about that at small groups, okay? He continues on. Day five, fish and birds. Day six, animals and humans. It's a good day. Day seven, God rests. I don't know about you, but it appears to be self-evident that creation took 24 hours. I mean, it says morning and evening. It says one day, day two, day three, day four, day five, day six. On day seven, he rests. That's Sunday. That's why we're here at church. What is the problem? Why is there controversy? Let's just go home now. Just one problem. Genesis wasn't written in, in modern English. The book that we're reading, the verses we read, that's modern English. The reality is that Genesis was written in ancient Hebrew for ancient Hebrews by ancient Hebrews. So, Genesis 1. Let's just take a look at this because this is the moneymaker, if you will, so to speak. What's going on here? Let's just read it again together. And there was evening and there was morning one day. So if we hold to the idea that God created the world and the universe in six 24-hour periods, this is just, I, I, I just look at this, you take a step back and you say, okay, walk me through this. It says evening and morning, one day. Wouldn't it say evening to evening or morning to morning? But it says evening to morning. So I, I mean, I'm from New Jersey, okay? And evening to morning in the wintertime, that could be like 14 hours. It never seems like it's never not dark in New Jersey. But depending on what time of year this was written, what place in the world, this could be 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, 14 hours. What are we talking about here? But see, the real question comes with this phrase, one day. Because as Americans, we read this and we say, what's the problem? It seems clear. That's 24 hours. Moses, who wrote this, you may not know that. There's a little tidbit you can use at your next cocktail party. Moses, the author of Genesis, used the word yam. Yam. Someone said, is that like Yom Kippur? I don't know. Okay, Yom. Here's the difference. Unlike modern Americans, and we have about 170,000 words at our disposal, the ancient Hebrews only had about 8,000. And they actually had very few nouns. So the nouns that they used had to have a lot of meaning. So we've translated this Yom as one day. We think 24 hours. Yom actually has four meanings. It means a portion of the daylight hours. It can mean all of the daylight hours. It can mean a 24-hour period, or it can mean a long but finite period of time. It's got four meanings. Let me just throw something else in the mix there, because when we're talking about God, and we're talking about days, and we're talking about time, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says this, okay, but, you know, you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. He's not saying a day equals a thousand years. 
And he's not saying a thousand years equals a day. What he's saying, if you read it, he goes, a day's like a thousand years to the Lord. He's saying, you have to understand that God operates outside of your little human timeline. Don't try to pigeonhole him into some 24-hour thing where you're looking at your watch and you're saying, God, can you start moving on my timeline, please? He's way bigger than that. So you're saying, all right, John, all right, I'm kind of with you, fine. What definition do we use then for Yom? How, how, how do we define that for day? What, what, how are we supposed to think about this now? Because you're kind of, you're changing it up on me. If you've read our website, and I know some of you have because you told me you looked at it to come to church today, you may have saw that we say that at DHC, our job is to educate and not indoctrinate. Basically, what that means is this. I want to give you all the facts so that you can defend your own position. Because someone's going to come to you and say, hey, what do you believe about creation? And the subtext is, you think it's six 24-hour days? I, want to give you the, I just want to give you all the information you have to give you the chance to make your own decision so that you can defend your position. Let me just give you a little bit of guideline, though. Whatever you choose, if you choose 24 hours, that's your prerogative. If you choose long periods of time, that's your prerogative. Just understand this. Whatever you choose, your position cannot contradict other parts of Scripture. Scripture cannot contradict other parts of Scripture. That's a no-no. If your interpretation conflicts with Scripture, you got a problem. And the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with your interpretation. So let me just say something. And this is the part where you might get offended. And I hope you don't. The problem you'll run into with a 24-hour view is you will begin to contradict other parts of Scripture. Now, I understand that many of us have been brought up understanding that the Bible, the, the world was created in six 24-hour days. I understand your old church may have said that. Your pastor may have said that. Your parents may have told you. But the truth, look, Christina and I, the girl who sings, we were talking this week, we spent hours working on just this slide. She says, John, I'm just going to be honest with you. It sounds like you're telling them how to think. We don't do that here at this church. And, and I said, all right, let me just see if I can wordsmith it. Let me see what I can do with this. And I spent hours trying to find a way not to say this because I didn't want to offend. And I did, I just, but I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit. I don't know what it was, but I couldn't stop myself. I just, I had to give you all the truth. Because this is not my opinion. This is Hebrew scholarship. This is theological scholarship. It's not John Garippa's opinion. If this bothers you, we can have coffee. We're certainly going to talk about it on Tuesday night. I invite you to join us. So what do you do then? What do you make of this? Let me offer a suggestion. Defining day as long periods of time, which is one of the definitions, removes contradictions with the rest of Scripture. And I can't go into what those contradictions are today because we'll be here for hours. Nobody wants to be here for hours, trust me, not even me, and they pay me to be here, okay? <laughs> Defining it this way absolutely removes any contradiction you would ever find because if you take 24 hours, folks, you're going to run into an issue as fast as reading about the seventh day, and you can go research that yourself. Here's why this is so important. Here's why it's so important to begin trying at least to understand a day could be defined as a long period of time. Because when you do, when you listen to Hebrew scholarship, this means, folks, that creation could have taken hundreds or thousands or millions or billions of years. We don't know. 
But the Hebrews wrote it in a way to leave it open to this. And what's so amazing by understanding a proper definition of the word yom, which we call day, is that what we've done now is we have now removed the tension that seemingly, seemingly existed between scriptures and science. That's good. That's important. And if you haven't said yes to Jesus because you're struggling with this Genesis part, or maybe you're somebody who has said yes to Jesus and you're struggling with this Genesis part, this should be a breath of fresh air. So how old is the Bible according, how old is the earth according to the Bible? Because scientists will say it's four and a half billion years old. They say that the universe is 13.8 billion years old. So what does the Bible say? It doesn't say. Nowhere. It doesn't say. What's interesting, though, and I didn't know this, and maybe you guys know, but a 2017 Gallup poll just came out, and it found that four in ten Americans believe that God created man and earth. That's a good thing. And they believe that he created it less than 10,000 years ago. I was surprised by that. If you told me it was four in ten Christians, I would say, I believe that. But I was shocked. I, was, I, just, I just didn't expect that. You read the details of the article, and it says that the majority of this, of this minority believes that earth and man and the universe was created around 4,000 B.C. This is the date. There's a little bit of you know, wiggle room. Could be 5,000, could be 4,000. But they think everything was created about 6,000 years ago. So the question is, how did they arrive at that year? What mathematics did they use? What texts within the scripture did they look at to arrive at this, at this year? Because, you know, if you're going to hold this position, you should at least know why you hold this position. They got this year by deducing when Adam and Eve were created based on genealogies. Genealogies is a fancy word for family trees. Specifically, there are genealogies found in Genesis 5 and 11. And when you add up the names and the dates and the birthdays in those two genealogies, you arrive at about 4004 BC. It's extremely exact. 4004 BC. That's all well and good. The assumption is that there are no gaps in these genealogies. For this to work, there can't be any gaps at all. There can't be any people missing inside of these genealogies and, you know, if you want to arrive at 4004 BC. Now, if you hold this position, and that's your prerogative, let me just remind you again, your interpretation must be consistent with the rest of Scripture. See, too often, and, and uh, we're, we're all guilty of it at some point, we pull out one verse, and we love that one verse, but if you only focus on one verse, and you don't make sure it squares up with the rest of Scripture, you might have a problem on your hands. So these people who hold to this 4004 BC, they look at two genealogies. But when you compare those two genealogies to the other 25 in the Scripture, what you learn is that almost 70 percent of the names have been dropped out. I told Christina that week, and she goes, ooh, that sounds like a problem. It's not a problem. It's not a problem. This wasn't a mistake. Understand that. This was not a mistake. This was a conscious decision on these folks. Anytime, here is a tidbit again for you. Anytime you see genealogy in the Bible, they're not just trying to give you a family tree. They're trying to teach you something through it. Often they work on patterns. So sometimes they like to do Two groups of ten, okay? Four groups of five. 
Sometimes they leave out all the women because they want to focus on the men. Sometimes they leave out all the men because they want to focus on the women. Sometimes they leave out the Jews because they want to focus on the Gentiles. Sometimes they leave out the Gentiles because they want to focus on the Jews. There's always a reason for what they're doing. But you've got to remember, your interpretation has to square up with all the scriptures. So when you look at every single genealogy found in the Bible, when you write down all of their names and all of their birthdays and all of that kind of stuff, and you add it all up, what you learn is that the creation of Adam and Eve is more like 60,000 to 90,000 B.C. That's a big difference from 4,000 B.C. And this is straight from the scriptures. What I found so amazing about learning this is that modern science will tell you that Homo sapiens, that's modern humans, originated anywhere from 100,000 to maybe even as long back as 300,000. Folks, for my money, for a religious text that's not trying to be a science book, that's pretty darn close. That's pretty, I mean, Moses wasn't like, let me add this up and make sure, you know, the scientists, it's all, that is pretty darn close. So, let me just spend a little bit of time talking on Adam and Eve, because this is just part of the creation story. We don't have a ton of time, but I just want to just run through this real quick for you. Let's just read it so we're all on the same page. Genesis account. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. That's the Trinity speaking. We talked about that during the Holy Spirit series. You should go back and listen to it. It was pretty good. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It goes on. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You read this, maybe even you said yes to Jesus, and you ask the question, are we really supposed to believe in a historical Adam and Eve? Are we really supposed to believe in a historical Adam and Eve? Jesus did. Jesus spoke about Adam and Eve. He preached about Adam and Eve. He created theologies based around Adam and Eve. And folks, for my money... For a guy who can predict his own death, burial, and resurrection, if he believes in Adam and Eve, I'm with him. It also seems like science does also. From the Journal of Science from a few years back, you, you know what DNA is? I assume you all know what DNA is. They're talking about DNA here. It says this, almost every man alive can trace his origins to one man who lived about 135,000 years ago, new research suggests. And that ancient man likely shared the planet with the mother of all women. This is not some Christian science journal. This is Journal of Science. I was blown away when I read this. I was shocked. I was like, are they actually saying that like, maybe they believe in Adam and Eve and everything we're reading may actually be the truth? Wow, that's amazing. Moses goes on. The Lord commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Avoid that one tree. For in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. And immediately following this, Satan makes his first appearance on earth. And he takes the form of a snake. And he talks to Eve. And folks, just a heads up. Okay, here's the deal. If you ever meet a snake that's talking, that's not a good thing, all right? 
I mean, I talk to my dog. If you have pets, I'm sure you have full-on conversation with your animals. If your dog ever talks back, you need a young priest and an old priest because you got some problems going on in that house, okay? But here's the deal. In this conversation between Satan and Eve, he says, hey, Eve, good to see you. Beautiful garden, isn't it? No problems at all. There's no death. It's wonderful. Saw you talking to God. What did he say to you? And she says, well, he said that we can't eat of that particular tree. She actually added in, we can't touch it either. He never said that. That's for a different day. Satan goes, well, what happens if you eat it? What did he say? And Eve says, well, he says, we'll surely die. Satan said, no, it's not going to happen. You're not going to die. I mean, I know what he's trying to say, but you're not going to die. God would never do that to you. That's not a problem. Eat up. It's good. Take a bite. It goes on. She says, or it says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her and he ate. And in that moment, paradise was lost. This garden that God created where there was no death and everything was perfect, everything was lost. Paul, a New Testament author, talks about this, and he says this. This is what happened. Sin came into the world by one man. That's Adam. And sin brought death with it. And death was spread to all men because all have sinned. Now, if you've checked out, and I wouldn't blame you if you had because it's a little long, don't miss this because this really, in my opinion, is the most important thing we're going to say today. You need to understand this. God never wanted death. He never wanted disease. He never wanted sadness. He never wanted hardship. God never wanted hurricanes or cancer or murder or depression. This was never his plan for this world. These didn't exist in the beginning. This was not in, the Eden, in Eden with Adam and Eve. This was not God's plan. But the brokenness of this world, folks, is not God's fault, but man's. And we're all, and I'm included, we're all quick to blame God when things go bad. When we suffer hardships, when we see death, we blame God and we say, how are you letting this happen? It's not his fault. Now, when we say this, when we read this account, because I've been asked this question, and maybe you're asking it of me right now. Do you really think everything is broken because two people ate some fruit? Do you really believe that, John? Yes, I really do. But you've got to understand it's not about the fruit. It's not about whether it was an apple or an orange or any of that. It's about the idea that God so long ago gave every single one of us free will, and we disobeyed him, and we broke it all. And because of that day, and it just happened to be a piece of fruit, we brought sin and death into this world. But as far back as the Garden of Eden, as far back as when it was still dark in this world, God loved us so much that he had a plan to redeem this broken world. And it's Jesus. That was his plan. You see, Jesus would redeem what Adam destroyed. Everything that Adam's curse touched, Jesus would touch and redeem. We know this because Paul talks about this. He says this, death came 
because of a man, Adam. Being raised from the dead also came because of a man, Christ. He goes on. All men will die as Adam died, but all those who belong to Christ will be raised to new life. And he wraps up by saying this. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. See, what I understand from this is this. Our relationship with God was broken by the first Adam, but it can be repaired through the last Adam, Jesus. Adam brought sin and death and sadness and brokenness, but Jesus, he came to this earth to give us life. And the Bible says life abundantly. So what's the practical with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put the word practical on the screen because we want to make sure that you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. Well, the truth is you've heard a lot today. You've really, I mean, you've almost heard too much, and I apologize about that. You've heard a lot. So all I want to do for you guys this week is I just want to challenge you to think about all of what you've heard today. For some of you, this may be old news. For some of you, this may have really changed your concept of what happened so many years ago. So here's, here's the deal. There's a couple of things that we can know, but there's some things that we don't know. And we will never truly know, we'll never truly know the specifics of creation. Scientists won't, we won't, okay? But there is something we can know. We can know that God is in charge of it all. We don't know if it took 24 hours. We don't know if it took seven long periods of time, whether it took hundreds, thousands, millions, or billions of years, but we do know however long it took and whatever methods were used, God was the architect. God was in control. And that's pretty amazing to me. But with a conversation like this today, you have to understand something. And this is very important. Our faith, is not based on a book or even the creation account, but in the event, the resurrection. Our faith is only based on the fact that God sent his son to this world to die for our sins, that should you say yes to him, that you and God have been made right. Were it not for the resurrection, if Jesus didn't beat death, none of this would matter. The creation account doesn't matter. Noah's Ark doesn't matter. The, re the resurrection, folks, is everything. The resurrection is the anchor to your faith. Whatever you hear science say about the Bible, whatever you may learn, whatever may just challenge your faith a little bit, your anchor is this event, the resurrection. So you have to understand that God has been writing your story since the very beginning of time. In that day one, when it was still dark, and he began to separate the light from dark, he knew what was happening, and he had you and me in mind. He was writing your story of redemption, should you say yes to his son Jesus. That's amazing. And he thought of us what could be billions of years ago. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here today to talk about the wonders of your creation. The truth is, we don't know everything. 
And we can be comfortable with being uncomfortable about that, Lord. Mystery is, is your middle name, and I think that's amazing, Lord. And I just thank you that you've preserved these texts for so many years that we can look back on the wonders of who you are and what you've done in this world. Lord, so many of us here today have been just so severely impacted by what Adam has done so many years ago. Death, destruction, disease, sadness. Every single one of us is dealing with some form of hardship, and it's because of one man. And I pray that today, Lord, that your son Jesus would touch us wherever that place of need is in our life, wherever we are struggling because of that curse of Adam, I pray that today every single one of us would begin to feel the touch of Jesus as he redeems us now and continues to do so moving into the future. I pray that blessing on every single person here, Lord. And I place that request in your son Jesus' name. Amen.